0: Jaya Radha Madhava Tunjabi Hari Jaya Radha Madhava Tunjabi Hari Gopi Janabala, Balakirivared Hari. Shyam, Gopi Janabala, Balakirivared Hari. Yashoda Nandana Prajajana Ranjana Yashoda Nandana Prajajana Ranjana Yamuna Yamuna tirambanachari Jay radha madhava kunja Gopi Jana Bala Bala Hari. Yashoda nandana Nada Ranjana. Yashoda nandana Nada Ranjana. Jammu Nati Banachari, Jammu Nati Banachari, Jaya Radha Madhava Chunda Biharī. Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabi
1: Hari
2: Jaya Omishnupada Paramahamsa Bhadirajakacharya Ashtarasa Tashi Shi Madhis Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada Kija Ananta Koti Vaishnavarinda Kija Namacharya Srila Haridās, Dasta Grantaraj Shri Madhvagavatam ki Samaveta Bhakta Vrindaki Jai Gora Premanandi All, glories to, All glories, glories to the assembled devotees All glories to the assembled devotees All glories to the assembled devotees All glories to Shishi Guru and Goranga.
0: Om namo bhagavate vāsudevāya Om, <coughs> Om namo bhagavate vāsudevāya Om namo bhagavate
2: vāsudevāya Narayanam namaskritya Naram caiva narottamam devim sarasvatim vyasam tito jayam udhirayad nastaprayishvabhadresu nityam hagavata sevaya
0: bhagavati uttama shlokhe
2: bhaktir bhavati naishtakhi Good morning. It's so nice to be here, Radhakala Chanjidam, reading this auspicious section of Srimad Bhagavatam, chapter eight of the first canto, prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikshit Saved. This is text one. Suta Uvacham Atate Sam Paretanam. Swanam Udakam Ichatam datum sa krishna gangayam purus kritya yitya Sam atatesam parethanam swanam udakam Datum sa, Datum sa Krishna Gangayam, Purus Kritya Yustriaham, Please chant. Atate Sam Vāṇām ʻudakām ʻjtitaḥ Iṣṭhāṇam ʻjtitaḥ Iṣṭhāṇam ʻjtitaḥ Iṣṭhāṇam ʻjtitaḥ sutta Panam udakam Icchitam Datum sa krishna sangayam Purus krityaya yuxtriyaha <coughs> uvacha Krishna Gangayam uruśkṛtyā yayu striyah aśnavīsa <clears> ante <throat> <clears throat> sampareṭhānaṁ udakam icchitam and God just Anyone else? else? Suta Uvacham. Suta said, "Atam, thus, te, the Pandavas, samparetanam." of the dead swanam of the relatives udakam water ichatam willing to have datum to deliver sa along with Dropadi Gangayam on the Ganges Puruskrityam putting in the front Yayu went, striyaha, the women. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Sutta Goswami said, thereafter the Pandavas, desiring to deliver water to the dead relatives who had desired it, went to the Ganges with Dropadi. The ladies walked in front. Please repeat. Sutta Goswami said, thereafter the Pandavas, desiring to deliver water, to the dead relatives who had desired it, went to the Ganges with Draupadi. The ladies walked in front. Report. To date, it is the custom in Hindu society to go to the Ganges or any other sacred river to take bath when death occurs in the family. Each of the family members pours out a potful of the Ganges water for the departed soul and walks in a procession with the ladies in the front. The Pandavas also followed the rules more than 5,000 years ago. Lord Krishna, being a cousin of the Pandavas, was also among the family members. Hare Krishna. There are three, three topics here to discuss this morning. First is death, then is rituals, followed by ladies. Is that all right? I'm always very struck here when I come to Dallas, feeling separation from Tamal Krishna Goswami. What a great blow that was when he passed. What a shock. Um, death is rarely convenient. And it's, it's often uh, so disruptive to our lives. And in the Gita, Krishna describes that he is that death himself. sarva uh, tarasya. I am all devouring death. When Arjuna is having his doubts about fighting in the battle because he'll have to kill his relatives, Krishna shows him that, in fact, these relatives are already dead. They're already dead by my arrangement. So you're not going to save them by not fighting. They're already going to be killed whether you fight or not. So it is with death in this world. Whether we like it or not, whatever we may do to avoid it, to spare others from it, it is an inevitable part of our lives. My, uh, sometimes people say that this is so morbid to talk about death, death, death. It's like, what a fun movement, you know, death, old age, disease, and, and it just seems morbid. But this is counterintuitively the key to happiness, to actually deal with an issue of inevitable Consequence, might as well deal with it up front. I work in a college center, and the students are often tasked with these final exams. And the, the notice is given well in advance. You know when it's going to be. And the, the natural tendency of the lazy human mind is to say, I'll deal with it later. Manana. Manana. I'll just deal with that when I have to. So on the last weekend before the exam on Monday, the, the student is thinking, okay, I've got Saturday, I've got Friday night, it's Friday night, I've got Saturday and Sunday. Let me just forget about it for a while. (laughs) And then Saturday recovering, and then Sunday it's all desperate, last minute efforts. So much anxiety unnecessarily. If, if instead on Friday the student dealt with the studying, then have all weekend to enjoy. So to confront an unpleasant reality is actually the key to happiness. And to try to avoid the unpleasant reality is what makes us suffer, what puts us in anxiety, always in anxiety. This is one of the qualities of Kali Yuga, that everybody is always disturbed. Why are we disturbed? Because we're not dealing with the responsible realities of human life. So we talk about death and we prepare for death, and devotees are really good at it. Devotees are good at two things, cooking and dying. Preferably not in that order, but uh, we, we are good at um, cooking because we learn how to cook very expertly for Krishna's pleasure. This, any conventional cook is always sampling this and trying this and adding a little of that. Devotees have to become so expert that they can prepare perfectly without taste, without testing, and then offer for Krishna's pleasure that requires so much more conscious attention. So in the same way, uh, death, the reality of death, requires conscious attention. And when it's dealt with in this format, especially in discussing in philosophical perspective, how it's inevitable, how it is not really affecting the eternal soul, that allows us this amazing ability to be prepared for it. Otherwise, look at the fate of a person who doesn't have the knowledge of Srimad Bhagavatam, right? Their, their whole life is material enjoyment. One by one, they lose their faculties. They become, their world shrinks. Have you ever watched this in old people? The, the world just, it just kind of collapses in because there's less and less things they can do. As one old man told me once, uh, if I get a haircut and go to the post office, it's a big day. So that, that process just continues to the point where one is bedridden and unable to do anything at all, even some speak or see or hear. Sometimes everything just is gone. And then what is the fate of a person who hasn't prepared for this moment? It's panic, right? It's just total anxiety. Medical science actually knows that most people uh, defecate and urinate as they're dying. Because just out of terror, we we have the description of the Yamadutas in the sixth canto. That's what the devotees call the police on campus when they're coming to bust them doing book distribution. The Yamadutas are coming, <laughs> but the the fear and the panic of an unprepared person at that critical moment—it's like like a person who hasn't studied for the exam, and now they have to take it, and they can't put it off any longer. So. So being prepared, on the other hand, allows one to confront death with a uh, calm and even a blissful anticipation. Finally, I am done with this material world. <laughs> even in the, amongst medical professionals in the hospitals, they notice this amongst the, the devotees. In Alachua, there's a big concentration of devotees, probably the largest in the Western world, maybe about one out of every 200 people is a devotee in that county. And so the the, the nurses and doctors see them and see the devotees coming in in intensive care, and they see the devotees coming in to visit them. They point out, this is, of course, pre-pandemic, but they point out that whenever there's one of you people in the hospital, so many of their friends come, and everybody's kind of smiling. (laughs) So it's a wonderful thing to age in Krishna consciousness, but it takes a lifetime to, to prepare you know, that's the, that's the hard part. If we can get over the hump of adolescence, get over the hump of youth, get over the hump of marriage and family and all these middle-aged responsibilities, we get past that and we still keep chanting. Then we really come to realize this first from the, from the Bhagavatam. Every day the sun rises, it is taking away the life of the materialist, but it is bringing the devotee one step closer to Krishna. So the devotee welcomes the sunrise in that respect. Oh, this is one last day, like a prisoner in the cell. You know, another mark on the wall. <laughs> another day's gone. A little closer to my goal and my destination. So, death is not a cause of fear or panic for a devotee. We don't uh, pursue it, but we are prepared for it at any moment when it when it happens. Uh, my, one of my friends was on a plane one time. My godbrother brother Nara Prabhu and he, This plane all of a sudden developed some mechanical difficulty just before landing, and it was—it it looked pretty grim. And all around in the, in the compartment, everybody was screaming and crying and and wailing. And he was, he, so he pulled out his beads and started chanting loudly: "Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare." But then somehow it landed safely. And the people were looking at him, what is that you were doing? (laughs) He was the only one who wasn't freaking out. He was the only one who seemed to know what to do at that crucial moment. So this is our our training in Srimad Bhagavatam. Nonetheless, in this situation, the Pandavas are, as we'll read, Yudasir is distraught about the death, very distraught about the death, even though he knows all these things. You know, this comes a little later in the first canto, but, uh, just can't handle it because he feels responsible for the death of so many people, the deaths of so many people. Uh, <clears throat> he did not want the fight. He did everything he could to avoid the fight. He, he made a very generous offer to eliminate the fight and nothing, nothing worked because it was Krishna's plan. You remember from the very beginning of Krishna book, why was Krishna coming to the earth in the first place? Right, to, to reduce to, to reduce the burden that had been placed by all this unnecessary military buildup. So he had his purposes in the war taking place. It's very convenient, you know. The two sides are fighting against each other and they wipe each other out. Even his own family, which was the only family left after all of this the only powerful military family, he arranged this fratricidal war between them, so they killed each other. So this was Krishna's plan, and it was his purpose. But nonetheless, and Yudhisthira was fully enlightened, by the way, on this subject. When he was confronted by the uh, unembodied voice, the yaksha at the lake, you remember this from the Mahabharata, all his brothers had, out of thirst, drunk from this lake after being warned not to, and they were all lying there dead. So Yudhisthira came upon the scene, and it was full of lamentation to see his four dead brothers. And, the, and then he began to drink because they were they were all so thirsty. And then the voice said to him, you must answer my questions before you drink. All his brothers had just blown it off. But he said, yes, what are your questions? So one of the questions was, uh, what is the news? Simple question, what is the news? Like, yo, what is the news? <laughs> and... Uh, he said, "The news is that uh, all that this uh, let's see, this body is like a frying pan. Uh, all the, the the soul is like the this, uh, seed, and then the this world is like the flame underneath. Something like that. The news is that everybody's being fried. <laughs> everybody's going to destroyed in this world. That's the news." Uh, and of course, what is the most amazing thing? And he said that, that uh, everybody sees all around them death is happening, but everybody thinks it's not going to happen to me. That's the most amazing thing. So the yaksha was satisfied with both of these answers and his others. So he, he he asked him which of okay as a reward for you I will revive um, one of your brothers. So he picked either Nakula or Sahadeva. I forget which one. Yes. And, and the unembodied voice said, why, are you, why don't you take the powerful Bhima or Arjuna? He said, well, my, my mother, Kunti, has one son surviving me, so my uh, co-mother, Madri, she should have one also. So the Yaksha was, again, very pleased by this. And, of course, it was Yamaraj, the lord of death, who was testing him like this, his father. So, fully enlightened as he was, Yudasir nonetheless was lamenting the death of his relatives. Very heavily, very heavily. So we can learn from this also that we have enlightenment philosophically. That doesn't mean that we won't have feelings. We have feelings, and feelings are very important. Feelings, in one sense, are the only reality we know. (laughs) Everything else is sort of theoretical, but we know how we feel. And when someone dear to us dies, we feel great pain and great distress, and that is that is natural. It's all right. Devotee doesn't mean you have no feelings. On the contrary, it means we understand our feelings and experience them more deeply. because We don't try to dull them with intoxicants and other distractions. So devotees have very keen emotional experiences and death is the most profound of them. And we've lost so many wonderful devotees. It's just, it is, um, like when we lost Srila Prabhupada, when Srila Prabhupada left our our vision. He was, it was a great blow, but un, but in one sense, everyone was prepared for it. So, although it was great, it was a great emotional loss. It, we were prepared. We were expecting it. Was, he had been so ill for some some time. We were pro- praying, hoping against hope, but he kept giving notice, time and time again, that that he was ready to leave. So, uh, on the other hand, when, when devotees like Pankajangri Prabhu leave us, you know, it's, again, there's some notice. It's, and we're praying. Uh, but still it is, it is a great blow when it happens. In fact, that we've lost to over a hundred devotees to the pandemic in India, as well as other nice devotees. Uh, of course, Bhakti Churu, Maharaj, and, and others, great luminaries that will just never be replaced. So, when we experience death, it makes us or we experience the death of loved ones, it makes us really wonder why Krishna is doing this, more profoundly than perhaps any other experience. We can't imagine carrying on. Um, And that is when our knowledge kicks in. Then our expectations for enjoyment in this world begin to diminish, and that's a great blessing from Krishna we're all thinking it's not going to happen to me. I mean, maybe intellectually we're we're understanding, but we're not getting up in the morning thinking, all right, today's the day. (laughs) And yet it happens. So as we age and we see so many loved ones dying and we experience the death, slow death, the slow motion death of our own body as one faculty after the next starts petering out, (laughs) then uh, it, it has this wonderful effect of crushing our youthful power to enjoy this world. It is, if we can't do it, if we can't get rid of it philosophically. We get rid of it that way. <laughs> you know, and, and it's a, thus the, these very painful experiences that we go through have this beneficial effect on us. It is surgical almost how Krishna hits us where it hurts. So, so there's no, value in avoiding, trying to avoid these ill feelings or or sad feelings that come with this body and this life. Um, There is a beautiful verse in the first canto, fifth chapter. The, uh, The philosophers, those who are philosophically inclined, do not pursue happiness because they know that it comes of its own accord just as misery does. Kalena sarvatra rambira ramasa. In all times, in all places, in all circumstances, happiness comes of its own accord, and death and sadness comes of its own accord. So, people who are wise don't pursue uh, happiness or try to avoid unhappiness. They just trust in Krishna. That's the real thing. You know, trusting in Krishna means that we can deal with any sort of negativity, any sort of pain. We know that it is Krishna will give us strength. So this is the very poignant moment where the Pandavas are dealing now in the aftermath of the war with massive numbers of dead people. This is what Arjuna was wanting to avoid. I could not enjoy a kingdom if all these relatives were dead. And now they're all dead. And more death is yet to come. Uh, But um, the Pandavas are performing the rituals. So briefly about the rituals. Rituals are there to, uh, to help us deal with grief. And they are... Beneficial in that respect, uh, but they are not in and of themselves the substance of, of the Vedic literature. We were discussing this yesterday on the, the way up. Uh, I want to introduce my friends, Dr. Jeremiah here and uh, Briant Madanga Prabhu here. We were driving up from Houston reading Shri Upanishad, and the name of the introduction is Teachings of the Vedas. So the Vedas are full of rituals. Uh, rituals that are meant to help people in different circumstances of life. Uh, and yet there's this this kind of juxtaposition between Sanatana Dharma and the Vedic rituals that the, the rituals are useful, but they're not the essence. Uh, if we have only the rituals and we don't have the essence, then it's like uh, it, it is incomplete. But if we have the essence, we don't really need the rituals. This is the point. Uh, if your rituals don't bring you love of God, what is the use of your ritual? On the other hand, if you have love of God, what is the need for your rituals? <laughs> so rituals have this sort of marginal position. And yet, as Krishna explains in the uh, 18th chapter of the Gita, that, that uh, penance, sacrifice, and charity, 17th or 18th chapter, even great souls don't abandon them because they're still purifying. So keeping a perspective on rituals is important. When they, we think that the rituals are everything, then we risk a, a niyamagraha, Falling down because we're neglecting the relationships in favor of the rituals, so they have their limited place. Finally, the ladies walked in front. Puruskritya, ya stria. So it doesn't say it, but it implies that ladies are generally in the back. But in cases, in matters of of emotional. Uh, intensity like this, women are far superior to men as far as their ability to, to perceive and understand and process feelings. This is the, the difference between men and women, uh, one of the differences. The, you know, Prabhupada used to quote his professor Farquhar in Scottish Church College who said that uh, men's brains are bigger than women's brains. So when Prabhupada would say this he was poking he was like poking in western society to get uh, you know to get a, a little attention <laughs> on the krishna consciousness movement <laughs> uh, and, but he was quoting his british professor See, that's what he learned from you your what your, your western education taught me this so here it is back at you <laughs> but in fact updated education this was of course 19 in the 1920s but updated research shows that in fact men's brains and women's brains are equally sized in proportion to body weight. There is no, no difference as far as the actual, uh, physical capacity, just uh, the body weight difference, that's it. However, in that same research, they discovered that men's and women's brains are wired very differently. Mostly in terms of the, the lobes. The, the, uh, Rational lobe, that's the, is that the left side? Any psychiatrist, psychologist here? Anyway, I think it's the left side is the rational and the right side is the, um, is the emotional. So, the, uh, men's brain is very heavily weighted on the rational, abstract side. That's why men walk around like this. <coughs> But women's brains, there is a, there is communication between the two uh, hemispheres. So, so women, that's why women often say men, why don't men have a clue? Is that right? Women can see very clearly what's going on in, in the hearts and in the, in the emotional side of things where men are just kind of oblivious. This is the, the, the example, practical example of the difference. Um, uh, A woman will say, a wife will say, can you take out the garbage? And the rational brain will say, can I take? Yes, I can. I am physically capable of taking out the garbage. Yes. (laughs) And then they go on watching the football game. (laughs) And then then the woman is frustrated. What is your problem? You said you'd take out. I didn't say I'd take out the garbage. (laughs) So... This is one of those additional things that helps us realize there is no enjoyment in the material world. <laughs> Marriage is one of those blessings. So in this case, the ladies are in front because this is a very emotional moment. And <clears throat> the ladies are much more capable of processing and recognizing and dealing with the emotional intensity of the situation. So they're, they're walking in front. Um <clears throat> in the early days of ISKON. There was gender equity amongst all the followers of Srila Prabhupada. There was a real sense of family in the temples, starting in the, starting really in the San Francisco temple in 1967. It's a beautiful picture of Srila Prabhupada with his, uh, young disciples, and all the ladies are in front. You know this picture I'm talking about? Prabhupada sitting in the back, like, like the father, and then there's So many amazing devotees there, Jayananda and uh, Shyamasundar and Malati and Kunda and others uh, who did amazing service. And they're all sitting there, and the ladies are in front. And there's a real family mood in that photo. So uh, around 1973 or so, there's this this new ethic kind of entered that if you really were a serious devotee a serious male devotee you'd be a brahmachari and a lot this really came from actually the devotees going to india living in india for some time and then coming back and saying oh if you guys don't know what, <coughs> what vedic culture is we'll get, we'll tell you what what the real thing is when you're really advanced you'll be you'll do this and this and this and a lot to do with the rituals and and other social customs so in the Mood of imitation, rather than following in the footsteps, devotees sort of adopted these things. There was a sort of saffron wave, and and uh, uh, all the women were really marginalized, and that was a, a phenomenon that many of my god sisters experienced very, uh, very painfully. What was a real welcoming, open family atmosphere morphed into the sort of military camp mentality. So. Then Prabhupada left this world. Of course, Prabhupada was encouraging. They were doing big book distribution, but he always stood up for the ladies also. There was a, a, as an example of the how the consciousness changed. In, in Bombay one time, uh, the devotees were going with Srila Prabhupada to a program at a member's house, and there were just two cars. So all the the men just rushed in, filled up the first car, and left. In fact, the first two cars and left. <laughs> There were three, and so there was just one car left, and all the ladies were stranded. So they thought, well, at least let's see Srila Prabhupada off. We'll get to see him. We can't go to the program, but we'll get to see him as he's leaving. So they were—they all lined the hall, and they were uh, offering flowers, and Prabhupada looked and said, you're not going to the program? And they explained what happened. He said, oh, ride with me. (laughs) So they all crammed in the back seat of Prabhupada's car, and they went to the program. But this sort of thing was commonplace, and, and... the, the the ladies experienced it over and over again, just being marginalized and pushed out and an afterthought. And it is it is truly impressive to me, the ladies who have endured all of this abuse <laughs> and and maintained their service and their faith in Prabhupada all these years. I mean, they are very special souls. And no man could possibly endure that kind of ego bashing. <laughs> you know, they'd be maybe out the door. You're not going to respect me. I'm out of here. I'm, you know. So, um, so ladies have this, this checkered history in our Sangha. And, um, in, in our preaching in, in Florida, where I, my servant Gainesville, we've discovered that when the ladies are treated equally with the men and given equal facility, equal encouragement, equal recognition, that same phenomenon from the sixties, manifests again where people were just joining all the time. People were joining so much that all the devotees just knew, right? You know, some of we old timers, you remember, there's always going to be people joining. Always going to be new people joining. So that old people can go over open new centers or go here or there. You know, we can trade this one for that one. <laughs> uh, there'll be new ones. So we could count on that flow of newcomers all the time. Year after year after year. So that's what's been happening, amazingly, in in Gainesville. That we've just gotten to a point where we just can count on new people coming all the time, and uh, it, it's a wonderful phenomenon. But it all comes from the ladies being treated equally with men, just like they were in the '60s and early '70s. So the key to our uh, reaching a wider audience in Christian consciousness is how we treat the ladies. That is, uh, that's our experience. So every time a lady joins in Gainesville, we just like. The goddess of fortune has come. <laughs> we are so grateful. And uh, we have actually the only supervised ladies' ashram in the entire continent. Prabhupada wanted one in every temple. In 1968 he sent a letter saying every temple should have a brahmacharini ashram. But very few do. And even if they do, they're generally not really for newcomers. They're for, for more established devotees. So, having a supervised program for young ladies to come and develop their Krishna consciousness is—it is to me the key to our our preaching in North America these days. So, I wanted to just share that with you. Um, one of the—we're going to open one in Houston, also. The devotees there have invited. So, um, and one of the devotees sent a, a lecture or a little arrival address by Goswami. You might remember this one, uh, Madhukrishna Maharaj arriving in Houston, and he's—he's. He's, talking very nicely to his disciples, but he said, you know, uh, I'm very disappointed that we don't have a more diverse audience here. He said there are 40,000 Hindu families in Houston and there's 17 temples and we're competing with so many others, but nobody is competing for the the, the black, the Hispanic, and the white audiences. So you have a monopoly. I love the way he thinks. <laughs> You'll have a monopoly if you go after this one. He said you would, no one would open a dry cleaners or a Dunkin Donuts that says Indian customers only. <laughs> he said you go out of business in no time. <laughs> so in his unique way he was prodding the devotees try to reach a broader audience. So uh, the the way the ladies are treated is key and uh, I'm hoping we'll see this direction more and more in many of our temples that uh, we, we reach out, we take care of the young ladies. There are no brahmacharini ashrams in India. They're very, very rare. You know. So again, this is one of the cultural impositions that has come over from this, this history. But um, in fact, the actual application of Krishna consciousness should be sensitive to the culture. And that is our, our uh, realization after some years doing it in Gainesville. It's been great. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Any comments or questions? Hare Krishna.
3: Definitely, as as you mentioned, that uh, the the spirit or you know the, the essence is very important of the ritual and and also like in the corporate world like as you were saying i, I see that you know there is empowerment being given and and several uh, like say you know the ratio has to be equal so what is the uh, you know h- how we how we make sure that uh, like for the topic of uh, giving respect and the uh, and the facilities to the women like say in ramayana you, you know the mother sita she she said you know uh, me too like the me too movement mm. and then Shrupanaka also said me too mm-hmm. so how how to you know like keep the essence and not get because this also becomes a ritual there has to be 50% ladies at mm-hmm. all level of the organization right.
2: so you're saying like affirmative action Right, is that that doesn't seem to fit. course, Suparnika, just to say, Suparnika was wanting to eat Sita, so her Me Too is not on the same level as Sita's Me Too.
3: <laughs> but in the current society as well, like I'm not saying that yeah. all men are good. Uh-huh. At the same time, like uh, the undue advantage might be taken as well.
2: If, <coughs> if there's compensation, overcompensation to try to accommodate Ladies, am I understanding correctly? Right, artificial. Well, there's a few considerations there. First, in the Chaitanya charitamrita which is really the mature fruit of Prabhupada's writing. It's based on his experiences having started ISKCON. He, he says that to try to impose cultural values from one society on another is impossible. A word he hated. Right? But he said it in his purport. It's impossible to try to do the impossible. To try to get... The cultural values in one part of the world imposed on another is niyamagraha it's just a waste of time. So um, so what are those cultural values, uh, that we kind of unconsciously ag- adopt? One is, uh, mataji. We say, okay, if you're a devotee then we have to call you, ma- and you're a woman then you're a mataji. Even if you're a 19 year old girl, you're a mataji. You know, as, as one Lady put it, where I come from, if you call someone mother, it's followed by another word. <laughs> so, I once said, I once said, um, Mother Jamuna, and she said, Yes, Father Kalakanta. <laughs> Prabhupada, therefore, he used the word, he used Prabhu. He called all his disciples Prabhu. Yes, it's grammatically incorrect. <clears throat> yes, it's like calling a woman, sir, if you speak the language. But at the same time, He was teaching his young disciples to have a service mood, right? And so this was a detail that was not important. Everybody's Prabhu. Just see everybody as Prabhu, as your superior, as your master. And that was very beneficial for his young disciples. And he addressed his women disciples as Prabhu. He wrote to one devotee, he just learned how to do deity worship from Shilavati Prabhu. They're in black and white, you know but then it became very controversial no you have to call him mataji it's so wrong it's so wrong you see if you call a, a young western woman mataji she'll she'll think at best it's weird if she's not insulted but if you call her prabhu because everybody's prabhu oh that's a very nice thing, you see so that this is a small example but there's other examples like t- when the ghee comes the ghee lamp comes off the altar right what do we do? So like ritualistically, we take it to all the men first and then the women. Now, put yourself in a young woman's shoes. You walk in the temple, you see, all oh, the men get it, and then the women. Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> you see? And we lose our goddess of fortune. So just little things like that that bring gender equity. These are not big sacrifices as far as our tradition is concerned. But they're a big impact as far as our preaching is concerned. That all right? I hope I've addressed your question. Maybe not quite.
3: Yes, yes, thank
4: you. Are <laughs> So, as it states in the in the um, in the verse here, that the um, when they were doing the. Um, the tradition of going to the Ganges and offering water that the ladies were in front, mm-hmm. and you were mentioning about their emotion, how they're able to process in a, in a different term from men. And then you, as you went on, you also talked about um, how even when Prabhupada left, um, um, the mood that was was happening then <clears throat> And I just wanted to share that, I, I mean, I remember being in Gainesville when Prabhupada left. And it was interesting because I was very young and I didn't even know how to act. I, for me, I thought once Prabhupada left, you know, Krishna consciousness would be over, it's finished. But the thing was the mood in the temple, it was very, it was very somber and very, very, you know, very quiet. And I looked, I didn't, I didn't know how to act. I did not know how to process. When you, so you really, you know, you know turned on the light to that. But I did look around and I noticed that the women, the women knew how. I mean, they would, you could hear the sniffling and the and their the emotion, and it just seemed it was like it was like you know the men didn't didn't the men in the temple. And we had a full house; the temple was packed, I and mean, we had a lot of devotees living in it. Mm. And it's interesting that you you brought up that point, and you know it also shows that too is that. It, it's it, the 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 processing was different, but but equal because each, the men and the women were acting out of their own, um, I can't find the word, but you know what I'm their
2: nature. What, their
4: nature, yeah, their natural tendency. Yes. you know, and there was nothing wrong with either action, but it was they were different.
2: Yes, yeah, that's a beautiful example. You know, in the Gita, Krishna says that uh, he is the intelligence among women. We read so many places, Prabhupada, women are less intelligent. But in the Gita, Krishna says, among women, I am intelligence. But it's a different word. And elsewhere, intelligence is buddhi, but in that instance, it's medha. It's a different kind of intelligence. So women have that emotional intelligence. Same thing for me. When Prabhupada left, I, I didn't know how to feel. But uh, but the women, I could see the women were, were in tears. I was actually in Dallas during that time, here in this temple room in uh, yeah, the, the women could process and the men couldn't, <clears throat> and <clears throat> that really reflected on the the direction of the movement because they had all these men who really couldn't deal with their emotions, making irrational decisions like zonal acharyas. <clears throat> You know, it has some because of that lack of balance that was unnaturally disturbed.
4: And I also like the fact that when when that balance is corrected and it's done, it's not misbalanced. Things go more nicely yeah. because everyone's acting out of their natural propensity and out of their nature. So things just seem to go very smoothly. There's yeah. no challenge, and there's no you this and you that. There's no you know. So you know that's a very good point. Thank you for for you know reading that because I I I, I struggle with that for years. You know, trying to understand that why didn't the men you know um, react.
2: They couldn't. Yeah, they just couldn't. And then when women became marginalized, it just got worse. Um, yeah. Just briefly, I want to mention: you see, brahmachari ashrams pop up around our movement in North America, but they generally don't last. But the, if you have brahmachari and brahmachariini ashram, then it just it's sustainable, and people join, and, and then they keep going forward. Yes, Prabhuji.
1: I had a couple of questions, but. Um I'll start with because there is this vein of thought towards uh, gender equity um, and I'd like to clarify I need clarification so that we know from a cultural standpoint from within you know how we when we approach um, when we approach the culture of the temple the culture of the society where we are um, we also see in a gender equal society that there is more propensity for um, men and women who they can stay together mm-hmm. especially if we are also going to promote a society where there is yes. marriage yes. where there is um <laughs> the clash of the egos if i may um and when when there is this propensity and the training right from the very beginning that says all right you have an equal at the same time we understand just from a physical standpoint that you know i have a daughter and I understand that if she has to go through some difficult times and they have to move on, she is going to be physically more affected um, than the man is. It's just, that's how it is. Um, um, if they get in a relationship and they have children, and this, that, and the other, there's that thing, it, it hurts the woman more. than So in which situation, then you almost step back and think, is it preferable? For a woman to essentially step back, yeah. rather exactly. than you know fight, you could, but then there are consequences. So That's how the, do you deal with that?
2: I'm so glad you raised that point, and it's, it's a beautiful and well-stated question. Um, <clears throat> the The main point to understand is related to this discussion of rituals and essence. Okay, so the essence is Krishna consciousness. When there's Krishna consciousness in society, it's natural that women will take a different social role, because they're protected. But when there's no Krishna consciousness, what are they supposed to do? You see, that's the West. The the, the women are, uh, the men, immoral, irresponsible, exploitive, right? And so the women are left to, with two choices, either try to find a decent man or take care of themselves. And that's the real experience of the, of half the Population in the West. And the women, most of them just say, I've got to take care of myself. I cannot trust these men. You see? So is, is it, whose fault is it? You see? But w- if we take a ritualistic approach to this, we say, oh, okay, let's establish Vedic culture and we'll start with the women. Cover your head. Stand in the back. You, know? <laughs> you see? That's what happened in the 70s. Okay, we're going to establish Vedic culture. Get in the back. You see? And, and, uh, it, it's just so, it's just so insensitive. It's not the way Prabhupada addressed it. So the essence is Krishna consciousness. Therefore, we should ask, what will actually help people be Krishna conscious? And then, when people are Krishna conscious, there's a, a chance to establish more of these cultural uh, practices on a sustainable basis. You see? It's just, there's a story about a man in Russia who, in this Russian village, I hope I'm not going too far over time. Tell me when to stop and i to turn off Prabhu. All right.
3: <laughs> All right.
2: <laughs> There's this, this story about a, a, a in this Russian village, the sign of prestige was to have a fur coat. The rich people had fur coat. The peasants wore rags. So, this one man, poor peasant, he was determined. I'm going to get a fur coat. I'm going to get a fur coat. So he scrimped and saved, and he sold everything, and finally was able to get his fur coat. So he walked out in the town square with his fur coat. And everybody just started laughing and laughing. And, and he said, they're, they're laughing, what's the problem? And, and then they were, they were all laughing because he, he, he was naked underneath. <laughs> he sold everything so he could get the fur cone. <laughs> so we could get some, yes, we have Vedic culture, but we're naked underneath. <laughs> Make some show, uh, some superficial show. <laughs> and the, and this, the brunt of it falls on the women in our society. But you're absolutely right. In a natural setting, look, I have two daughters. I've been married for 40 years. I understand women need, I mean, to to, uh, deliver and raise a child is a full-time endeavor. And if women don't have that protection and shelter to do that, it really affects them and the children and the whole society. So, yes, if, if the men are responsible, the women can have that protection. And they, they want it and they deserve it. But if, if they are equipped to take care of themselves in the society. And that's how they come into Krishna consciousness. So we try to impose on them, no, you got to get rid of that thing, that whole attitude of self-sufficiency. They're not going to buy it. They're not going to trust us that much. <laughs> you see? So if we just meet them where they are, which is part of our philosophies, right? Pandita Samadarshina. We just... In practice, yes, we'll treat you as a peer with your male counterparts while you're learning Krishna consciousness. And people naturally gravitate to their own position. But getting, trying to get in the door is the challenge. You follow? Okay, thank you. Other comments? Yes,
5: Bhagavan, for a moment. You were talking about um, preparing for death. We sometimes wonder, uh, actually, but we always spend our time actually trying to avoid death. Generally, everything we do. So, I was wondering, like, where is it a a point where you you just sort of surrender to Krishna and, and give up on? Survival, so to speak. You know. mm. Like, uh, it seemed like, sh- like a devotee told me hey, um, his wife was given a, a month to live. Mm. So they spent their uh, their entire life savings of about half a million dollars on, on cures and uh, treatment. And right on schedule, she left her body. Wow. And her husband was left without, not only without his wife, but also without all their money. And we saw with Srila Prabhupada, he seemed like Prabhupada was, was he had Kavirajas, you know, he would take cures, um, sometimes he didn't like, sometimes he was given bad medicine. You know, like one time Prabhupada said, I, I'm being poisoned, you know, so that was misinterpreted. He was talking about this medicine that the Kaviraj was giving. He said that, uh, you know, and at a certain point he just seemed like he just sort of like, gave up on, on doctors and medicines and, and cures, and just went back to Godhead. So I'm wondering, like, where? How do we know? At, at what point in our life do we just surrender and give ourselves to Krishna and depend on Krishna? Actually, learn how to really do that, as opposed to you know fixing things.
2: Mm-hmm. Of course, we, we should give ourselves to Krishna. We should depend upon Krishna at every stage. Right? You don't have to wait for death. That, like, like Bhakti Chaitanya said, die before dying. Um, the the point is to put ourselves in Krishna's hands. Then, how much should we try to keep this body going in Krishna's service? That's a very subjective uh, question, and each, each case would be different. Um, when Sanatana Goswami wanted to kill his kill himself because he didn't want Lord Chaitanya to touch his oozing sores, he was going to throw himself under the Rathiatra wheel. Lord Chaitanya chastised him. said, you've offered your body to me, now you're going to kill it? So in on, on that sense, we shouldn't be premature. Oh, I'll just die. There's no point in fighting. But on the other hand, it is an over-endeavor often to try to keep this body going. Uh, so there's, there's probably a sweet spot for most people. The uh, natural cure is one course that many devotees take. That we're in that position, like Jayananda Prabhu, when he, he had uh, leukemia. So there was some sort of natural cure offered in Mexico that was illegal in the states. So he went down there to, to try that treatment, and uh, it was less expensive. And he was going around and preaching to all the other patients. And then the doctor said, you can't do that. So he said, I'm leaving. (laughs) So um, I'm thinking of one couple in Alachua. The the wife got breast cancer. And she went to a natural cure place and through a a diet and fasting. And she she actually went into remission. And she's been in remission off and on for 10 years. (laughs) And done tons of service and been, been healthy or at least capable. Uh, And then her husband contracted leukemia out of the blue, and and, they always thought that he was going to outlive her for by 30 years because of her family history and his. He got leukemia and went to the doctor, and they said, okay, well, we're going to have to start this and this process. And he said, okay, and then he just went home, and he wouldn't do it. (laughs) And At most, it was going to be they gave him another three years and he, he just decided it wasn't gonna, worth the quality of life. So he just went home and peacefully passed with, with a lot of kirtan. So his wife is now a widow, and she, she was very, very happy when he passed that he had such a nice departure. It could be, you know, so it, it's just very hard to tell. He wasn't willing to do anything. Neither was Jayananda. She was willing to try something, and it worked reasonably. So... You know, you won't really know until you're in that situation, will you? But in general, we we do have a tendency to want to drag it out, perhaps more than, than necessary. Does anyone else like to address that question? A very sensitive, thoughtful question. How long do you want to stick around? How much did you spend trying to stay alive? When do you just say, Krishna, I'm ready to go? One thing is, every morning you wake up and say, Krishna, I'm ready to go today. (laughs) That's a nice way to start your day. (laughs) Take me today, I'm ready. My bags are packed, okay? (laughs) I'm in the waiting room. When when we keep busy, I'm ready. I'll do whatever you want, but my bags are packed, and I'm ready if you call me today. All right, so we'll stop there. Thank you very much, Prabhu. So good to see you. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Good evening.